2: It's the U.S. saying, we can't do this alone. We cannot deter both Russia and China um, alone. We need uh, allies and partners like Australia.
1: Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, Lisa Curtis, Senior Fellow at the Center for a New American Security, joins Will Stoltz and David Andrews from the college to discuss the US national security strategy recently released by the Biden administration. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Nambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.
0: Lisa, thank you for joining David and I at the National Security College for a discussion.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: It's very fortuitous to be able to have you in person in Canberra at the time of this recording because, um, as many of our listeners will know, the Biden administration has just released, uh, the latest national security strategy, um, which I understand you were involved quite closely in producing the last national security strategy. So you've got a real, uh, first person insight into how these, um, important kind of keystone documents are crafted. There's, a myriad of different things that David and I want to explore with this strategy, but we thought perhaps um, the first place to start, particularly for an Australian audience, would be to just give us an understanding of what actually is a national security strategy in the US context, um, You know how who's responsible for developing it, how frequently they put out, that sort of thing, because they are kind of um, an unusual uh, uh, feature compared with the Australian system.
2: Well, the national security strategy is actually very important in the US context. And usually a new administration, when they come in, that's one of uh, their top priorities is issuing a national security strategy. And as you mentioned, when I was in the Trump administration, uh, uh, the Trump administration actually uh, was able to publish its national security strategy quite early, um, December 2017. So, you know, less than a year, uh, into its time in office. And basically, the, the national security staff uh, contributes to this document. Well, actually, all of the, the US government, but it's it's really um, written and, and drafted and organized by the national security staff. And they bring together all arms of the U.S. government, Department of Defense, State Department, Department of Commerce, um, to uh, basically identify the priorities that the administration, that particular administration will take. Um, And then once it is issued, it becomes the sort of planning document and the driver for everything the administration is going to do on national security. So it's very important in setting the tone and the priorities of each administration. Uh, So the Biden administration took a little bit of time Mm -hmm. in issuing its national security strategy almost two years into its administration, but they did issue the interim guidelines, which came out about a a, a year and a half ago, actually in the spring of 2021. Uh, So they did have uh, their general approach laid out uh, for the US public. Um, but it, it is quite an important document. It's worth paying attention to. It's worth reading um, because it will tell you the priorities of this administration and what direction it's going in.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll let um, David jump in uh, in a moment. I just wanted to, I suppose, um, ask because you were so closely involved in the previous administration strategy. I mean, what, what are the, perhaps the, the key features of continuity but also the key features of difference in this strategy? Noting, of course, that you know, the world has changed in some pretty dramatic ways since the, since the 2017 strategy.
2: Well, that's right. I think in 2017, there was a focus on great power competition with Russia and China. And uh, the administration, uh, the Trump administration was getting away from a, a sort of singular focus on counterterrorism, which of course had framed US national security strategy post 9-11 for many, many years. Uh, But I think if you look back at the 2017 national security strategy, you will see that uh, the administration was recognizing that great power competition was beginning to frame the national security lens in the United States. But the Biden administration really goes um, much further in that direction. And we barely see the mention of terrorism counterterrorism in in the document. but I think a slight difference is the way the Biden administration's national security strategy uh, di- makes a distinction between China and Russia. Uh, on China, the emphasis is on competition, mm. uh, whereas on Russia, it talks about Quote unquote, constraining a profoundly dangerous Russia. So there is a distinction made in the kinds of threat or competition that we see from uh, Russia and China. Uh, but it's, it really is heavily focused on the competition with China. It talks about what the United States is going to do internally to, um, improve our ability to compete effectively with China, whether that is investment in our own technology sector, uh, what we're going to do in terms of market, uh, economic competition. um, And it talks a lot about how we're going to work with allies and partners. And I think that would be another distinguishing characteristic of the Biden national security strategy as opposed to the Trump national security strategy. Um, Really, the the Biden strategy uh, emphasizes that we must work with our allies and partners, countries like Australia and others. And it it highlights uh, several different initiatives that the administration is already taking to um, be able to work more closely with allies and partners to preserve that... Uh, transparent rules-based mm. international order. Whether it's AUKUS, the Quad, the Quad being U.S., India, Australia, Japan uh, cooperation, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, uh, the Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative. Um, there are you know all these initiatives that are already underway, and I guess that's one advantage to waiting almost two years before you put out your strategy. You can talk about what you're already doing.
1: One aspect that I think is probably of interest to both the National Security College, but to the Australian uh, context is that without, as Will said, we don't have a national security strategy. We had one in 2013, and that was the only one we've had. Mm -hmm. Uh, That national security encompasses a lot of domestic aspects as well as international. It's a lot of transnational issues as well. So uh, the national security strategy talks about climate change, talks about COVID, talks about uh, sort of- natural disasters and famine and all sorts of different things as well as america's domestic political security and that as being an aspect which it has to have stable and secure so that it can be strong and secure overseas so how do these different aspects of domestic and international and transnational security how do they all sort of mesh together into the national security strategy
2: well, I think that's a great uh, question because you do have to have a uh, political buy-in, um, you know, from the public uh, for your strategy. So you do have to connect it to the everyday lives of Americans. Uh, so I think, you know, that uh, is something that is definitely infused uh, in this new national security strategy and uh we've heard a lot about uh foreign policy for the you know middle class of America um and so i think that that uh, is something that the biden administration pays particular attention to um is ensuring that uh, the american public will buy in to to the strategy and i think there there also is a connection made uh about the importance of the indo-pacific region um, how it's, you know, constitutes, you know, two thirds of all the trade that's happening globally. And, uh, that, you know, it really is, um, the focal point for the, the economics and, and trade investment, um, that is happening and that is important for the United States. So I think it does make the case for why the U.S. needs to focus on this region. And why the U.S. needs to um, uh, compete effectively with China, and so I, I think there are um, uh, you know specific things that the U.S. is doing to be able to shore up our own industries, particularly. Mm-hmm. Critical and emerging technologies. Um, if you look at the Chips Act that was recently passed, which calls for investing, you know, over fifty billion in our semiconductor industries. Um, so, you know, I think that's the way that you you tie what's happening domestically and you know how is this uh, going to benefit the um, average American um, and why it's necessary for the U.S. to um, compete on the international stage, to be engaged, to develop its partnerships and alliances. Um, you've got to make that connection. And, and I think this national security strategy that was uh, just released does a pretty good job of doing that.
0: Yeah, I suppose I, I'm not sure if it's a fairly new feature, but it feels like a new feature to have this really um uh, blurred kind of bleeding in between the international and domestic spheres, it must make um, designing a strategy like this with all the myriad of stakeholders quite difficult. I mean, Australia, we have to contend with um, – you know w- what we think is a lot of issues with um, different jurisdictions and 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 our federation. But in America, you know, fifty states. It's kind of mind-boggling to think about the breadth of stakeholders. You know, you mentioned the different industries that are affected by some of these policies. I mean, from your experience um, designing, being involved in the design of the previous national security strategy. I mean, is there a fair amount of consultation, like domestically within, um, you know, f- say for example, with uh, other state. Uh, jurisdictions and those sorts of things, or is it really a creature, kind of a, a, a top-down um, creature of executive authority? A strategy like this,
2: I think it really is. Uh, you know, comes from the top, from uh, the executive, mm. and I, but I think with you know the domestic policy council office in the White House, that's where you would get the the mediation of sort of um, what the average American is thinking or cares about, um, they would sort of mediate that input into the national security strategy. Um, I think that's the way it would happen um, because you know after all the the national security staff is is not that big. Mm. Um, it's it's a fairly you know tight organization and so there's really not the ability to sort of, you know be going out and consulting um with each individual of you know the 50 states um but i think that the way that that input um comes in would be through the the domestic policy council which would you know have their pulse on uh what's happening at the political level and um you know among the different uh states so yeah i think that's that's really how it happens um, it is an intensive effort to to draft these national security strategies because you are sort of coordinating, you know, all of the U.S. government. And you can imagine that, you know, each of the offices and regions has their particular interests and things they want to make sure get in there. But um, it's, it's quite a, a light document. Mm. So you can imagine there's a lot of editing and paring down and. Um, really prioritizing what gets put in there. And then you have people who who count the number of times, you know, China's China. mentioned or, you know, uh, whatever country or, or issue. Um, and people spend a lot of time uh, looking at, you know, what is mentioned or what's in there that wasn't in the previous mm-hmm. document and, and vice versa.
0: Yeah, a lot of scrutiny, a lot of scrutiny going on there. Um, I suppose you mentioned the um, – the, the domestic political uh, aspect, I'm interested um, to perhaps on your views of how much uh, bipartisan consensus there's likely to be around this strategy or whether you see, um, I suppose, particularly in in the um, Republican Party, which is, you know, to external observers, I think it would be fair to say is being pulled in multiple different directions, whether you see um, – Particular issues that might be addressed very, very differently by uh, a future hypothetical um, Republican administration, or, or again, whether is there a high degree of kind of bipartisanship around what's being laid out here.
2: I think on China there is a, a strong degree of bipartisanship. I think people were surprised. I thought I think they believed that the Biden administration would uh, change its approach to China. But there's more continuity than change. If you look at the mm. export controls, well in fact, we just saw the Biden administration implement very stringent uh, export controls on uh, China's semiconductor industry, which will have um, you know widespread impact on on China. So I think there is actually much more continuity than change. Uh, from the Trump administration. And I think if you go to Congress, you see there's bipartisan support for taking this tougher approach toward China and competing. Uh, And and there's recognition, I think, uh, both among Democrats and Republicans, that the policy of trying to um, reach out to China to, um, you know, integrate it into the global Trading system would somehow moderate their behavior, mm. uh, make them a responsible global player. That idea is gone. Mm. And, you know, that's bipartisan. So I think that you would find a lot of support uh, on both sides of the aisle for the approach to China that this national security strategy takes. Where you might see some difference uh, could be the Russia piece. And here, you know, we have seen some. Um, uh, you know, fracturing over uh, how uh, some of the Republican Party, a a small portion of the Republican Party, I would say, but views U.S. uh, providing so much military support to the Ukrainians. Um, There's been, you know, some questions raised, uh, should the U.S. really be providing this much, you know, billions in military support um, when we have our own interests and needs, um, in the United States. So uh, there could be a slightly different approach on the Russia issue. Of course, climate change. I, Mm -hmm. I don't think you'll see as much of a focus on climate change in a potential Republican administration moving forward. Um, and I know that's probably frustrating for our allies and partners who, um, You know, I think a country like Australia probably really uh, welcomes the focus on climate change um, that is in this document. And so that might be frustrating to some if we see, you know, a Republican administration kind of going backwards on that topic. I think you won't see a complete reversal um, because I think there is growing bipartisan awareness of uh, the critical issue of climate change and the connection to national security um, but you you probably would see some changes around the edges and and sort of less investment less you know US dollars going toward uh, climate change mitigation
1: to build on the theme of China as you were just discussing uh, to what extent do you think some of these uh, aspects of the national security strategy such as climate change, which are threats in their own right apart from what China may or may not do. um, How much do you think that China competition language has been utilised to gain bipartisan support for what might otherwise have been um, more controversial non-bipartisan issues?
2: That's a really interesting question because You know, we, we're seeing now that, um, the climate change technologies things like electric batteries uh, or batteries for electric cars, rather, um, you know, a lot of the the technology is in China or the supply chains are connected to China for these climate change technologies. So, uh, you know, we're thinking about diversifying those supply chains and what we can do. So we're not reliant on China for climate change technologies. So that does add an interesting aspect to the debate that um, uh, I think Republicans will will have to pay attention to, um, and particularly uh, as these investments move forward, and um, we see what's happened with the solar industry, and uh, you know nobody wants to see China dominating um, the solar panel industry, um, and we have seen some uh, diversification and the U.S. Um, putting effort into that. There was a major investment by the US in um, establishing a solar panel plant in India, India, which is a strategic partner of the United States. Um, so I think that will probably uh, bring in more Republican support than you would have otherwise when you you actually tie that mm-hmm. issue of competition with China to climate change and you see that uh this is a national security issue and we don't want to be uh wholly reliant on China for these technologies just as you know we found we were reliant on the pharmaceuticals during the the pandemic, whether it be PPE Mm -hmm. or the the precursors for pharmaceuticals. We know that uh, China is the major producer for the APIs, the uh, precursor ingredients for a lot of our pharmaceuticals. So it, it is interesting that the climate change issue is now directly tied in with the China competition issue.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's quite a difficult challenge, isn't it? Because you would like to think that all sorts of issues, whether it's um, uh, advocating for action on climate change, advocating for democratic reform, addressing human rights overseas, that those, those objectives would have a kind of compelling, um, you know, there'd be a, ca- a compelling call to action to do those things without great power competition. But um, I can certainly appreciate that for segments p- perhaps of, um, a U.S. political scene that might be a bit more inward-looking. That you need to put it into that great power context to perhaps mobilize action. But am I overstating perhaps the portion of um, American thinkers that that would want to see America turn more inward? I mean, this is this is a strategy that that while it perhaps acknowledges a degree of decline in America's global power, is still very forward-leaning. It still very much sees America as taking a very central role to international security. So is, there a, is, that, a, is that a topic for which there would be um, a diversity of views or is there a fair amount of consensus that that's the role America should be playing?
2: I think there still is an isolationist thread running through both the Republican and Democratic parties. I think a lot of it was based on you know America's um, You know wars overseas, the the quote unquote endless wars in uh, Iraq and of course Afghanistan. Um, But you know now that the U.S. has withdrawn from Afghanistan, of course you don't have those criticisms. Mm -hmm. But again, we saw that isolationist thread come out again in terms of U.S. uh, support for Ukraine, and I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Um, I do think that competition with China does galvanize the American public, um, and it, it's hard to argue against um, the idea that, you know, we want to compete, we want to, you know, maintain our place of primacy, we want to be the innovators, we want to be number one, and we want to hold that place as being number one. We want to hold that place as the U.S. being, you know, number one in technology, uh, so that is easier to get the American public behind, um, those ideas and, and keep, uh, Americans engaged in that idea that we do have a role to play overseas. And it is important to continue working with our partners and allies. Um, that helps the U.S. remain strong.
0: The, it, and and there is a real central component to this strategy, um, a real emphasis on this concept of integrated deterrence, which, t- to my mind, is 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 essentially a concession or an acknowledgement rather that um, the US does rely on a quite an extensive network of bilateral alliances, security partnerships, and multilateral groupings to kind of exercise and achieve this this strategy. I mean. Looking at it, it's exactly in a way what I would like to hear the United States acknowledge that there is a need for collective leadership. But I do worry that this goal of integrated deterrence is perhaps going to be a little bit too complicated to achieve in practice, because not, not just because you have such a vast um, range of countries with their own um, bilateral interests, but the idea of coordinating multilateral groupings like the Quad, or whether it's mobilizing things like AUKUS to be part of this kind of large scheme of integrated deterrence um, does strike me as being a, a pretty pretty complicated exercise. Um, I, I'd be interested in kind of your reactions to that that task that this strategy has kind of set for the US government um, of achieving that quite extensive coordination.
2: Well, I think it was important that the Biden administration explain what integrated deterrence is, because there were so many questions. The phrase was thrown out there last year, but uh, little explanation on what it meant. So I think devoting an entire mm. page <clears throat> to explaining what integrated mm. deterrence is was very important. And you know, there's there's really two two aspects here that we're talking about. We're talking about integrated deterrence in that it's not just relying on military tools to deter other countries from taking aggressive action. You also want to rely on economic tools like sanctions. You want to rely on diplomacy and partnerships and and alliances. So I think it it explains uh, this idea that it's a whole government approach to deterring Uh, other actors from taking aggressive action. Uh, But it's also about integrated deterrence with our allies and Mm. partners Mm. and bringing um, countries closer to the US, uh, giving countries capabilities they need to play this role in deterrence. And this is what AUKUS is all about. Um, It's not only um, you know providing Australia that technology uh, for uh, uh, nuclear propulsion submarines that are more stealthy, um, more able to 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 do uh, operations and and give Australia greater reach um, but also that pillar two of, um, working together on advanced capabilities, whether it's AI, quantum, mm. uh, electronic warfare, undersea capabilities. Um, and it's, it's the U.S. saying we can't do this alone. Mm. We cannot deter both Russia and China. Um, alone, we need uh, allies and partners like Australia. So that's what AUKUS is is all about. And there are other, you know, allies and partners that we would be looking to. For instance, if there was any kind of contingency in the Taiwan Strait mm. uh, that we needed to deal with, a country like the Philippines is very important in terms of logistics, basing, access. Um, And of course, Japan is a stalwart ally that we will be looking at when we think about integrated deterrence. Um, but I think you're right that the US um, needs to start pulling these countries together now and uh, thinking about roles, responsibilities, expectations um, in the event we do face uh, some kind of contingency in mm-hmm. the Indo-Pacific region. And I think fears of that have grown
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hotplate every Monday and Thursday.
0: Uh, The invasion of Ukraine has really been quite the... um quite the class in deterrence it's it's really showing us how deterrence works in practice and but one of the things that strikes me is that to make deterrence effective you need to be able to clearly message to the adversary and they need to clearly understand that message my concern i suppose with this model of integrated deterrence is it relies on so many actors and is perhaps so multifaceted and so complicated that it's difficult to send very clear messages to china about um about the resolve not just of the united states but of this entire kind of network um uh and maybe that's where um kind of new new structures new bodies might be required to to really send that message but that's i suppose a, that's a discussion for the evolution of things like the quad and and orcas as well about how we get that messaging right but um you know i suppose it's 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 a difficult task, but I don't think anyone's arguing that it's um, one that uh, the US should be abandoning. And it's good to see um, the Biden administration kind of
1: really staring this problem in the face in this in this strategy. In that spirit, uh, as you were saying, well, in terms of how do we message as as partner governments, partner countries towards this integrated notion of deterrence and of uh, countering some of the threats we're facing, is that one of the actual purposes of a document like the National Security Strategy? Is it as a a way of presenting a clear message from the US government that sets out its vision and its aspirations for how to tie these different countries together and saying, here's what we want to achieve. Here's where we think you need to play a role. And that's sort of the starting point for this conversation of actually operationalizing integrated occurrences, taking it from a, as you said, sort of a, a point which we didn't really understand a year ago. So now we've got some more information, but is is this that next step along the way to going from a concept to an operational plan that links these different countries and institutions together?
2: Yeah, I think again at the heart of it, the national security strategy is aimed at um, getting you know the whole of the U.S. government moving in the same direction on the same priorities, um, and you know demonstrating the the direction that the administration is is going in. Um but it's it is a public-facing document. And so there is recognition that the rest of the world is reading it too. And so that it is a message uh, to both our allies and our adversaries. And I think that it can be quite useful in that. And I think the integrated deterrence concept of not only military tools, military deterrence, but also, um, these other aspects, uh, can offer some reassurance. Um, I mean, you know, there's two parts to deterrence. There is, um, you know, uh, sending a message that there will be punishment and costs if the adversary takes the aggressive action, but then also, you know, a reassurance or, you know, some, uh, Offers of conciliation that if they don't cross that red line, they won't still face the the punishment and the risks. Um, and so I think that this document uh, can send that kind of uh, message uh, to adversaries as well. Now, of course, we do know there is a classified mm. China strategy document, so you know there is. Um, a time and a place for, for not advertising mm-hmm. your full strategy uh, to your adversary. So I think we you know we have to remember that. And let's not forget there was the Indo-Pacific strategy that was released in February of 2022, which uh probably you know feeds into this uh broader strategy, global strategy. Um, but I think it was important at that time for the administration to release that document, which was just a couple of weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, to sort of, um, indicate that, uh, this is an important region. The U.S. is invested in the Indo-Pacific and that You know, even though we're focused on Europe, uh, rightly so, and and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, we still know the long term, Mm. the most important long term priority is China and the Indo Pacific.
0: Mm. The the other concept, which I I guess it's related to integrated deterrence, um, is is this idea of the kind of managed strategic competition with China that, that that the US believes that there can be a healthy kind of co- competition between these two these two great powers i mean what's your view of of that idea i think we'd all we would all like to see an international system um where that can take take place um but there perhaps uh, is some cause for skepticism um given the kind of seeming bifurcation for example of the two technology systems around the united states and china you know we saw this uh, biden 's very firm act of kind of trying to decouple um, uh, the us and, and the west's um, uh, semiconductor systems kind of from the Chinese economy. I mean do you think that this uh, this concept of a kind of managed strategic competition rather than anything more aggressive than that is that is that, is that a feasible thing or, or are we perhaps being a little bit too optimistic?
2: I think it's feasible. And I, I wanted to point out that uh, on the day the National Security Strategy was released a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Center for a New American Security, where I work, co-hosted an event with Georgetown University where National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan expounded on the National Security Strategy. And he said some very important things on this very topic. Um, you know, he he mentions that, you know... Uh, uh, the U.S. doesn't want the competition to devolve into conflict. Mm. Um, and the national security strategy itself uh, clearly states that there is no change to Washington's Taiwan policy, that the United States does not support an independent Taiwan. Mm. So it's very, very clear on that point. Um, but one of the things that the national security advisor said was there is no interest in a new cold war that's characterized by zero sum calculations and that divides the world into rigid blocks. He was very clear about that. And he mentioned this phrase that the US wants to compete responsibly Mm -hmm. and it wants to support a positive vision for the future and for the, the region. Uh, So I think that, um, that, you know, that's an important aspect of the national security strategy. Yes, it's all about competition, but it's also about avoiding conflict. Mm. And, uh, you know, after all, that's what deterrence is about. Mm. Uh, You know, you're trying to avoid
0: conflict. I suppose um – you know, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that, uh, obviously China, China will get a vote in, in how, how successful that, that competition, competition goes. Um, and that with deterrence, there will also have to be, presumably, um, encouragement for more positive engagement. And we hope that that, that happens. I mean, a, a lot's obviously going to depend on how, uh, Chairman Xi decides to take, um, the foreign policy direction of China. Um, in coming years, um while we have you, I wanted to talk about russia because you mentioned russia and 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 there is that kind of other component of of Russia sitting in this strategy you know while on one hand there's the the responsible competition with china there is what i think I think it's the phrase is um uh constrain Russia um what I found really cu- curious about that aspect of the strategy is that it's actually making some kind of quite long term assumptions about the relationship with Russia, kind of beyond what the outcome of the war in Ukraine might be. You know that that conflict is is obviously still ongoing, but the strategy is kind of very much setting in place that it's like, well, this is going to be a long term um, uh, challenge of dealing with Russia, and we're going to have to actively constrain constrain Russia. I suppose it's it's a little bit um, perhaps bleak in in imagining that any more constructive or positive Russian partner might emerge. Um, but I just found that that quite um, quite firm, you know, and I suppose a great power, of the United States, is entitled to be entitled to be firm. Um, but uh, yeah, it'd be interested in kind of your take on on how Russia's been framed in 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 this uh, in this document.
2: Yeah, well, I think that's one of the reasons that the document was delayed. Um, I think the administration was very clear about that; they were going to release it uh, earlier in the year, and then you know, unexpectedly. Russia invaded Ukraine, although, of course, the US, um, as it got closer and closer, knew it was going to happen and was telling uh, our partners and allies that uh, we believed uh, Russia was getting ready to invade. Um, But, you know, after the invasion happened, it really uh, changed the whole geopolitical scenario. And uh, I think, rightly so, the administration delayed the release of the document because they knew this was such a consequential development that they had to account for, that it would have looked very tone deaf to, you know, release a strategy that was developed before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think, you know, it it, it comes out um, uh, spot on in, in terms of, you know, Russia choosing this path to... Um, mm-hmm you know, pursue this aggression, trying to, you know, rebuild its erstwhile uh, empire um, and really trying to overturn the international order and thwart, you know, the UN charter uh, protecting the sovereignty of all nations. Uh, So I think that um, making that distinction between, you know, Russia's aggression And, you know, a China that, uh, we want to compete with and, uh, we recognize has the means to, uh, really compete with the United States. Mm. You know, that's the distinction. Russia has already taken this very, um, aggressive, Behavior that's disrupting the international order, but yet doesn't have the long-term capabilities to really challenge the U.S. Um, in a in a significant way. Whereas you've got China, who you know hasn't taken uh, the kind of aggressive action that Russia has, um, but still has the capabilities to really you know mm. be able to uh, threaten the United States interests. Um, and I think it's it's important to leave that space open uh, you know to, to give China a sort of different path um, in fact in the document I think it says that um, you know it's possible for the US and China to coexist peacefully and contribute to human progress together. Uh, so it's making that distinction. Whereas, you know, Russia has already Mm -hmm. pulled the trigger, so to speak, and, and, and has already taken that action that is right now upset, upsetting the international order and challenging the rules-based order. The idea that, you know, all states are sovereign and, you know, um, you, you can't change borders, uh, through force.
1: You joked before earlier, least, that, that uh, everyone tends to go through and count up the references to their respective countries or interests within documents like these. And I think we've all seen the recent uh, sort of Twitter threads that people have put together of how many mentions X or Y got, and uh, Australia's not immune from that. And from what I recall, there were seven mentions of Australia the national security strategy, all in the context of groups like uh, AUKUS and the Quad and our um, ANZUS alliance with the United States. And so I thought I'd just turn perhaps to the Australian aspects of this, and, and particularly on things like AUKUS and the Quad, um, which I'm talking about integrated deterrence, they're obviously a part of that. Um, and I believe the defence minister, Richard Miles, has recently been talking or used occasionally some language around integrated or interchangeable um, with, with reference to the Australian Defence Force and the US military. So it seems that some of this language is percolating in the Australian uh, sort of strategic sphere and, and government mindsets. Uh, we've got our defence strategic uh, review due out in March next year, which should coincide with the final decision on what uh, what we're doing with Orca's uh, in terms of which platform. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's also a uh, national defence strategy which comes out of the national security strategy, which I mentioned will be forthcoming in the, the next few months. So there's obviously a defence uh, step change coming out in over the next. Four or five months that we can all look forward to, uh, but perhaps you could just give us your reflections on um, on U.S. attitudes towards groups like AUKUS and the Quad, how um, how they're viewed, where they're viewed in the regional architecture from the, the U.S. perspective.
2: Great, yeah, you're right. The uh, National Defense Strategy is supposed to be released very soon. Uh, it, I think, it was completed a while ago, but was. Uh, waiting for the national security strategy to be released first. So we should be expecting that very soon, as well as the nuclear posture review, which is very important. Um, So, yeah, I think all of these documents are important. And, you know, they will um, probably – they'll both touch on AUKUS – uh, because AUKUS is a very important military agreement between our, our three nations. Uh, that is, you know, the number one example you could point to of the U.S. recognizing the importance of our closest allies and wanting our closest, closest allies to have the capabilities, um, they need and the capabilities that will help, um, in, uh, deterring uh, China, so uh, yeah, the AUKUS um, um, agreement is you know central in the national security strategy, also in the national defense strategy. Um, the Quad uh, is you know a non-military group that is focused on things like vaccine distribution. Uh, critical and emerging technologies, space cooperation, cybersecurity cooperation, um, large, you know, maritime security, but largely non-defense uh, issues. And I think, you know, India has been very clear that it's not interested in seeing the Quad mm. become a defense alliance. And You know, also to not um, worry or concern um, our partners in Southeast Asia who have also been wary that the Quad could uh, fuel military tensions. And the last thing they want is to find themselves in the middle of a uh, U.S.-China conflict. So uh, there are good reasons why the Quad is focused mainly on non-military issues, but still strategic issues. They're issues that um, are helping to shape that international order in favor of democracy and openness and transparency. Uh, So they're strategic issues, just not necessarily defense-related issues. Um, so yeah, so I see, you know, Quad and AUKUS as complementary initiatives that are both necessary, um, in, you know, helping to shape a peaceful, open, um, Indo-Pacific order.
0: Well, Lisa, you've been um, so incredibly generous with your time to share from the insights of your your practical experience. It's it's excellent to um, to be able to have your insights as someone who has actually been involved in drafting one of these keystone documents, and and um, I'm sure many of uh, those listening will be watching quite closely. Uh, as this strategy is implemented. Um, But thank you so much for taking time to come and speak to us here at the National Security College, and um, we're hoping to have you back in Canberra um, in not too long as well. So thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.